Welcome to the Drop the Mic podcast, where we'll dive into conversations with some of the music industry's most established professionals. Like all of our episodes, what you will hear today has been created and curated by Stanford students who are breaking their way into the music scene. I'm Jay LaBeouf, and I lead Stanford University's Music Industry Initiatives. Whether you're aspiring to launch your career in the music industry, are already a music industry pro, or just curious to learn more, we've got you covered. Today, you're in for an exclusive look at the art of music making. Hear from recording artist Sun Kuma, manager of Leon Bridges and Carly Rae Jepsen, Jonathan Ishak, and Oscar-winning and Grammy-nominated engineer and producer Daniel Rowland. Each guest speaks to their unique experience in creating music and offering invaluable advice to aspiring artists looking to break into the music industry. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Stanford Music Industry Podcast. I'm Camille. I'm Yasmin. I'm TJ. And I'm Katie. And together, we will learn more about the music industry by talking to professionals specifically involved in songwriting and performance. In our lineup today, we have self-produced singer-songwriter Sun Kuma, co-owner of one of the most prominent artist management companies in the industry, Jonathan Ishak, and lastly, Oscar-winning, Grammy-nominated producer and sound engineer, Daniel Rowland. We hope you enjoy this inside scoop into the music industry. With us today is Sun Kuma. Sun Kuma is a self-produced recording artist from Los Angeles, California. Kuma began making music in 2017 during a one-year academic suspension from Stanford University, but his music quickly gained traction amongst many audiences. Listeners gravitate towards Sun's music because they relate to his lyrics and appreciate his ability to write songs that explore greater meanings from his everyday life experiences. His song Indica has over 2 million streams on Spotify, and he is currently working on his third mixtape titled Good For Life. Thank you so much, Sankuma, for coming and talking to us today. Hi, thank you guys. I know that there's probably many things that are challenging about breaking into the industry and being an up-and-coming artist. What's one of the greatest challenges you think you've faced um, so far in trying to pursue music full-time? I'll say the big, okay, one of the biggest challenges and like hardest to learn parts of the industry is um, like meaningful exposure slash promotion slash building the fan base. Cause like at the end of the day, people like songwriters who care a lot about the art and care a lot about what they do and it's their passion. All like we really want is to like share what we have. So we want it to be heard by as many people as possible. We want as many people as possible, like have their opinion on it, even if that's like good or bad. So. One of the hardest parts is coming up, like figuring out the best way when you have no audience or when you have like audience X, but you're trying to expand that to, to Y, which is like much bigger. It's difficult to figure out what are the best and meaningful ways to do that because there's a lot of ways, like a bunch. Um, it's hard to like figure out which is the best because you might only have a budget of this much. So you have to use that budget wisely. And it's very easy to spend it on the wrong thing. And it's very easy to think you're getting meaningful exposure, but you're not. For example, um, YouTube advertisement. So if you have like a music video, like a lot of artists will have like music videos or even like live performances and they want to like, they like push that to like a bunch of audiences to try to see like who would like them and who would want to work, uh, like subscribe to them. But YouTube advertising kind of has like two different types of ads you can kind of run. You can run um, like an in-video ad, like an in-stream ad, which pretty much means your video will be played for people on spot, in the beginning of someone like someone else's video that they're trying to watch and they can skip it after five seconds or they can click it. They have options there. And those are nice because like you'll get a lot of views on your video. Um, 
and like you'll get a lot of exposure so you'll be thinking oh wow i'm getting a lot you know but you might only gain like four subscribers after like you know a thousand people have seen it because they're not really going to click it to go subscribe they're just going to watch it and then click the like skip it in five seconds or maybe like not skip it but even you know they're not really going to click it because they're already doing something but there's another type of ad you can do which is a little like more expensive and you get less uh less of an audience but it's when they put it like on the side of a video where the person has to actually click it if they wanted to watch it um those ones are way better you might get like a lot less views from those for how much money you're spending but those are meaningful views because they clicked it for a reason they're going to give it a chance and if they like it they're going to subscribe or they're going to like or they're going to comment some kind of exposure that you want to get from that so that's kind of the hardest part is figuring out which are the best ways and which are like the ways that aren't worth it because when you're just starting, you have no idea. And there's so many. So yeah, pretty difficult, honestly. And it's still difficult, even for me. Given that Sun Kuma is a self-produced songwriter, we thought it would be really cool to hear about the thought process that goes behind writing a song. What does like, the songwriting or like the beat you know, making process look like? Once again, probably different for everybody. Because um, like, I have a couple friends that I've watched their process and it's very different. Um, and I love that it's very different for everyone because that, that's how you get like different vibes and different styles. And my process is very weird. So I pretty much, I'll have the beat first and it'll probably be my first or second or third time hearing the beat. It'll never be like my 20th time. And that's only rarely. Like that's if like I made the beat, then yeah, it's my 20th time hearing it. Most of the time, um, I'm just in a mood, I'm, I'm in a mood to like make some songs or I'm in that mode, that songwriting mode for the week. So of course I'm just going to make a song in the morning and I'll, go through my emails like a lot of producers send me beats i like have like a lot of friends who make beats who just send me beats all the time so i just have them on deck and i never listen to them until it's time and then when it's time i go through them and the one i pretty much just go through them until one like really makes me feel something like and that's what that something is i don't know and i never care i never try to go into it with anything like ahead of time if that makes sense because i know a lot of songwriters actually ahead of time they plan stuff a lot of songwriters like will write a song in their head over a week like they'll never like they're not even on paper like in their head they'll just write a song and then later on they'll write it, like they'll do it which is very impressive but i like it when it's spontaneous because that's what keeps it fun so don't think about it sometimes that's some different vibes than i've ever done before like it might be r&b might be funk might be jazz afro beats might be anything so that's what i like about that process too so whatever it is boom i find that and then i play it on like the uh digital audio workspace i use logic and I'll play it and then I'll have my, my mic on and I'll just, while I'm listening to it, I'll just record on it and I'll just freestyle. And that freestyle is half English, half gibberish. Um, I'll be like going, right? And then like, whatever comes, like, I'll be like, oh, that's a good flow. And I'll just do that for the whole time. And pretty much depending on that first freestyle, if I get something really good, I'll, I'll like finish it. And then I'll tell you what that process is like. But if it's not good, then I scrap it and I go to the next thing because it's, it's kind of like very spontaneous like that. I just do it like that until it works. Then when it works, the process is very strange because I kind of go into this like meditative state when I'm actually writing the lyrics because that whole freestyle is usually gibberish. And at that point, I'm like really into the song and I feel like nothing else around me even exists during those moments. Um, so I'll like play the beat on loop and my gibberish freestyle and I'll be writing the lyrics on my phone and that process takes hours, honestly. Like I'll be doing that for like two to three to four hours until the verse is done because it's very like 
I'll like write a line and then I'll write the next line, but then I might change the first line a little bit after that. And then I'll write the third line, but then I might have an idea for a new flow after this, but I know I'm going to put like four more lines of this flow. So I'll like leave space for that. And then I'll start some other lines down here. Then later I'll go back and I'll write some lines. So it's not like in order. I don't write my songs like that. I kind of like, it's a very much like a puzzle that I'm like slowly filling in and like it already kind of exists somewhere. And I'm just slowly like over and over again by like gibberishly freestyling coming up with whatever is supposed to sound like at the end. So by doing that though, it's very cool because it feels like I'm not conscious when I'm writing the song. So when the song's done and like the next day when I listen to it after I forgot about it, I'm always like, whoa. And I read the lyrics and it's always very cool. That's my personal uh, current method of writing. We also had a few questions about the performance side of being an artist. And how do you go about setting up performances? What does the process look like? Does someone offer you to perform at a venue or is it you who's kind of reaching out to different smaller artists or bigger artists or what does that actually look like? Yeah, so like lately I um, have just had venues been reaching out um, because I was going to plan a summer tour. um, But like that was like for the last like year. Um, I was like just letting venues reach out. And then for my summer tour, I was going to reach out to a bunch of, I was going to reach out to some artists to see if I can uh, like be on the lineup, be an opener. So that was pretty much, yeah, that was like, it's two different processes depending on like what kind of mood you're in or what mode you're in. I was kind of in a chill mode. So I was like letting venues reach out and I would say, okay, sure. You know, but when it's like tour mode, then yeah, then it's like reaching out and, you know, getting as many shows as possible booked. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to prepare for a show. I'm not going to lie. I don't, I haven't figured that out yet. Um, but currently my ways of preparing are like uh, for the lineup in the past, I've only had like 20 total songs. So the lineup was my 20 songs and some of those songs are short. There's also only so many songs I can perform live. Some, some songs I can't perform live because the song itself was like pitched up or pitched down, uh, like obsessed. I don't know if like, that's one of my songs, like my older songs and I pitched my voice up. So it's impossible for me to sing that high without pitching my voice up. So I don't ever do that song live. But um, one time, though, for my Frost performance, I actually, um, for Obsessed, I really wanted to do that song because the person I wrote that song was about was going to be in the crowd. So I was like, okay, let me like make a live version of it. So in that case, I literally sped the beat up, changed the beat completely and like kind of rewrote it. So and for that show, I prepared for a week for Frost like a week I was preparing and that preparation looked like me just sitting in my room, like with main stage, main stage is like this app on the app store that kind of connects with logic. And it allows you to like move your songs in between logic and main stage. And you could like set up a whole set set list on main stage and with all the effects on your vocal and everything, like it makes it really easy. It's kind of like Ableton live, but it's just like a little simpler version of it. So that's what I use. And I pretty much go through that and I make all my vocal chains and I make all the instrumental parts for the songs, which is very tedious because I have to open up old projects and my old projects are very messy because <laughs> I, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. But, and then I'll have to like, and also sometimes I delete old projects. Those are the worst because then I have to like recreate stuff and that takes a long time. So Frost, that's why I took a week to prepare. But if I was like doing like a tour or something, then I would probably make, I'll probably do that week preparation or two week preparation before the tour. And then for each show individually, I'll probably do like a two hour to three hour preparation before the show. And that pretty much looks like me with the mic doing all the uh, songs just to make sure I know what I'm doing. To ask kind of a closing question, if you could kind of give yourself advice, 
you're looking back at where you were a year ago or maybe two years ago, kind of whenever you feel like you really started diving full time into the music industry and this pursuit, what advice would you give yourself at the beginning of the process, knowing what you know now? Yeah, honestly, that question like generally made me happy because I've been thinking about that a lot. And when I was younger, like one thing also about a year ago is not only was I like younger in my music journey, but I was just younger in my mind. And I feel like these last like two, three years of growing up, like from 20 to 23, um, my brain has developed so much. And I was like, wow, like I just keep thinking about things in different ways. And now I think about things like patience is so important because like when I was a year ago, I was rushing everything, like just rush, rush, rush. I needed to blow up now. I needed to just, I need to make the best song now. I need to like everything now, which was not the right mindset. So the advice I would give myself is chill. Like it's not a big deal. It takes time. And anything, getting good at anything takes time, even if it's something you're naturally good at. If you want to be like your best form, it's going to take time. And you can't like bypass that. No way. And if you do bypass that somehow with like either a stroke of luck or with like a lot of money, those are like the two ways you can kind of bypass that. It won't end up being good for you in the long run because let's say you like get lucky and just get like a song to blow up, but you're still not like as comfortable as you could be performing or recording or making songs, or you're not as good as you will be like a year from now, then you won't be ready for like, you know, what's going to come after that. So that's the advice I give myself. Just be more patient and like, it's going to come when it's going to come. Things are going to happen when they're going to happen and like, it's meant to be that way too because you will get better over time. Joining us next is Jonathan Ishak, co-owner of MIG Management, one of the music industry's leading management firms. We're very lucky to have him here today to share his experiences as a partner in the management company as well as a manager of Leon Bridges, Maggie Rogers, and several amazing artists. As a manager, how do you decide whether or not to take on an artist? What does that process look like in terms of creating that connection and bond? Sure. It's a pretty simple industry that, that can be overcomplicated at times, right? But like, I will say, you, know, you guys are Stanford graduates, you're very smart people. Like, it's sort of a combination of resonating with the music, obviously. You can't market, promote, and be a evangelist for something you don't really believe in. So without that, it's really challenging. The second part of it is understanding that you share some sort of business and moral code with the person that you're going to be representing. The dynamic is almost like a marriage, right? You are okay. in each other's lives. You're sitting next to each other on planes. You're taking 1 a.m. phone calls. So you better be sure that the person that you're talking to that you actually like as a human being and want to do good work for. And then I think the third part is understanding the information that's available. You know, people would call data. You know, but it's really just about taking bits of information to make intelligent decisions, right? So when you can look on, you know, you, there's all these amazing tools online now from DSPs to social media platforms to get a sense of how an artist is connecting with the fan base. And you can sort of reduce that to really small levels and just see if they're, what they're putting into the world if there's a feedback from an audience that's suggesting we want this, right? So I think that it's about taking all of that into the equation and putting it in a pot and being like, 
is this something where I want to devote my time? Because the reality is, with a management is that everything's an opportunity cost. You only have so many hours in the day and it doesn't matter if you're a Lady Gaga or you're a brand new artist, they require an equal amount of energy and time. And sometimes even like the babies, as we call them, require more work than the, than the big artists because the big artists have a lot of human resources around them. And there's a machine that, is, that you're just kind of setting into motion at that point. So it's not a decision to take lightly, but it's, it's a kind of a confluence of all those things I just described. Mm -hmm. So how do you find the artists that you want to manage? What is that? Sure. So you know, I would say you know, to the point I made earlier, you know, number three, the third point I made is relevant, understanding the marketplace and understanding what people are connecting with. We've had the most success when we find artists that sort of gravitate towards us or we gravitate towards from the onset of their career. You know, with Maggie Rogers, it was kind of just a connection. You know, she was a fan of an artist that we represent named Sharon Van Etten. And Sharon was gracious enough to meet with her because Maggie, again, showing that ambition, like Maggie was reaching out to artists that she admired and wanting to have coffee with them, be like, how'd you do this? And then Sharon being like, this, this girl is really dynamic. And she talked to me and my colleague Zeke and like, you guys should sit down with her. And then sitting down with Maggie as an example, it's sort of, you know, it's just like a job interview is disingenuous, but just to sort of feel her out and be like, do we like this? Do we understand what you're trying to achieve? Can we help? Uh, Leon Bridges, as an example, uh, a friend of mine in Fort Worth, Texas, because I grew up in Texas, just found him, loved him, started making music with him, sent me the music. And it was honestly not much more, it wasn't really more complicated than it resonated with me. And you know, we were working with Maggie and with Leon as two recent examples before they even had any music available for the public. But then you know, more recently, I started managing Carly Rae Jepsen. And you know, she gravitated towards us because I think she saw the success and, and the way that Maggie was be Maggie's business was being run. And I think that that resonated with her. So she was like, who are the people who are doing that? So it kind of happens all ways, shapes and forms is the answer. But, you know, Mick Management has a reputation in the industry. It has a brand. And it's what's important for me as somebody who owns a business and who's a manager of the company is to make sure that we continue to have a brand and a, a way that we operate in the business so people can find us, if that makes sense. So, but you, to speak more to specifics, I mean, it can come from music industry attorneys will be like, oh, Mick Management might be good with you. A&R people in the business, booking agents that we work with. It, a, a lot of it still comes from uh, human touch and human relationships. We spoke to like, uh, and like interviewed a couple of like upcoming like artists and such. And like we, like all their group members like know personally, like a couple of like artists that are you know up and coming. Do you have any advice for new artists that are trying to like, you know, connect with a manager, or, you know, trying to take like their, his profession to like a next level in terms of you know sure. getting management you know it's a good question I, I think that you know the beautiful thing now speaking to like how all the tools are available to young artists new artists young professionals right we're all kind of operating within the same thing you have you have you know you can put your music up through 
numerous digital distribu distributors, right? Whether that be TuneCore to CD Baby to Platoon to name it, right? Dashco. And you can immediately get your music up on Spotify. And you can look at the Spotify has a dashboard that, or if you're a young artist and you can understand how people are engaging with it. So as that's just one sort of example of like the means of getting your, your work into the world is simpler than it's ever been. And I think I would encourage artists to do that for a few reasons. A, most managers and, and record labels and people of prominence in industry are really reacting to public demand. There's not a terrible amount of like speculative betting that happens anymore. And what I mean by that is like, you know, back in the day, there was like all these great stories of like A&R wonder men who were like had golden ears and they would pluck Whitney Houston out of obscurity and make her famous. That's just not really the way of the world anymore. I mean, generally speaking, what most record labels look for is and in, if you as a young artist can find a foothold with the fan base, create a relationship with that fan base. And if you can, it doesn't need to be on a mass scale because it'll be evident early. And then people will see that and they're like, well, I can gasoline that. I can help take that 100 fans that you're, that you're playing in front of in, in Palo Alto and I can make it 300 people in San Francisco. And I can make it 500 people in LA through a series of events. But sitting around and like waiting for uh, industry professionals to, you, you, I, well, let's put it this way. It's really hard for me to get motivated by like, here's my music, tell me what you think. I wanna hear about like, well, what is your, what do you believe in? Like, what is, this is your music, is it good? Great, that's a good entry, but it's only one part of the equation. And then I'm like, well, what are, how are you engaging with your fan base? What are you doing? How are they connecting with you? What are they saying that you want? How's your relationship with them? And then I'll look at like, well, what is your, what are you as a brand? How are you trying to present yourself to the world? Like, what do you want to do? Is it important? Because like, that's something that I want to take in consideration too. So the company started managing a new band we actually picked up during COVID-19, which is a first that I'd never met with them in person called, they're called the Backseat Lovers. And they're from Provo, Utah. And they're not a big band. You know, they're, they're, they're playing for 100, 200 people a night in Utah. But I was able to see that they could sell a couple tickets outside of the market. And I was watching them on Instagram where anytime they would post something, you'd see 40% of their followers would scream for it. And you can be like, okay, well, this is my entry point. They've developed, they've done the really hard thing, which is create a relationship. And now can I, can I look at them? Do I like them as people? Do I understand what their business is? Do I understand like how make management can be helpful? And if so, then there's a conversation of like, okay, now I can, you, know, you guys have been working from the bottom up. I can now help with some of the top down. I have like one quick question. If you're playing a tour or something, like how much does like the management company like deal with that? Like, do you help like decide the venues? Um, oh, or, like, yeah, I mean, we're like, tremendously is the answer. I mean, we, we, but you know, our jobs as managers to kind of get back to the point is artists um, create a lot of them. You know, let's just go ahead and make an assumption that most artists are going to have a live show. That live show 
is a complex business that's almost like separated from the business of the, of the record label relationship. So as a manager, our job is to help the artist create that show, hire the band, rehearse it with, you know, get them rehearsed for it, hire lighting and production and think about stage design and make all that. We are helping, we are sitting there helping the artist do that. And then the next step involved with that would be like, okay, we need to find a third party, what would be called a booking agent to then work on our behalf and sell that show to promoters in all the cities across the country and the world. There's different companies that do that. Uh, but the agent's job is to then work with promoters and then the promoters do what's called buying the show. So another planet interacts with my booking agent and they'll be like, Maggie, I want to buy Maggie Rogers show and I want her to play at the Greek theater and I'm going to give her X amount of money. And this is how I'm going to make my money. And this is like, there's a risk proposition for everybody involved. So to answer your question, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of touring of like helping them work on their show, build the show, tour the show, logistically buses, crew, trucks, gear, all that to working with the agents to strategy of like growth strategies. So it's not, it's not enough just to even be like, well, cool. We're just going to go tour. Like we, well, you need to have a knowledge of like, these are the right rooms to be in for this time of your career. That could be because the artist wants to sell every show out or because you know what, like maybe it's best for the artist to only play a certain capacity room because if we plays, if that artist plays a larger capacity room, maybe they're not really reaching the people in the back yet because their show isn't a big enough production or there's not enough material for them to connect with people or what have you to working with Lollapalooza and Coachella and being like, well, this is the right time to play Coachella because it's the right stage and it's the right time of day and it's the right look on the poster because those things are all negotiated. Like, well, Maggie Rogers one year might be like, cool, we're going to offer you X amount of dollars for Y stage. And we might say, we're not going to do that right now. We're going to wait until 2021 because we want her to be on this stage at this time and on this part of the poster because we're going to take all of this calendar year and we're going to, and we're going to put equity and time and energy into building her brand and her music and getting the world where we're going to hit you next year this time. And it's going to be a much bigger business and a better position for her. It's going to be better for you because she's going to be that much bigger. So there's a whole ecosystem on that side too, of how to, how to work in artists. That's awesome. wow. yeah. I just have one um, quick follow up to that because our podcast series is focused on songwriting and performance. So everything that you said is just, super relevant and you mentioned that um for her in her past life Maggie decided to kind of make that record more built for performance mm -hmm. so how did you kind of help with that transition like what did that look like from her that's perspective? uniquely uniquely her decision um in terms of how and what she wanted to go about making like that's the thing about Maggie she's you know Maggie's an artist who has a history of uh writing uh producing doing sort of the soup to nuts of how you would take a recording to the marketplace. Uh, you know, she felt that after you know, a year of, of touring the world on the EP that she wanted to make something that had more of an energy to it where that could support her sort of performing, jumping around on stage, running around and really giving uh, everything that she can to an audience. So when it came to working with 
the songwriting, that was pretty much in her domain. And then when it came to finding the producers who could help her achieve her goals, uh, I, you know, she signed to a, a label called Capital Records, which is underneath Universal Music Group. And she had a lovely A&R guy there uh, named Nate Albert, who, again, brought his expertise to be like, you want it to sound big? Let's work with this person, Greg Kirsten. If you want to do this, let's, let's do it. And kind of, and then Maggie testing these people out to understand like who was going to be the right person to help her achieve the sound that she wanted to make. So it was a process. And we, we started making, it probably took us about eight months to make the, the body of work from you know, delivering on the writing to mastering the music. And they're all very different. Yeah, some artists I work with, like when I would, John, John Mayer would have a, he'd have the album title before he had a song written. And he knew exactly what he was trying to do as a, almost like a thematically, how he wanted his record to sound before he'd even written the songs. So, it, you know, I don't know if he's evolved. I mean, we worked with him for 13 years. We haven't worked with him recently. And then some artists I know, like, they write everything quickly or some take years to make music. It just, it's, you just never know what the process is going to be. But our job is to support them and help them find the tools they need and the people they need to take their music to market. And lastly, we have Daniel Rowland joining us, a multi-award winning music producer and sound engineer. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. I think we're, we all agree, like, we're so excited that we can talk to someone so established and, like, so successful. I appreciate it. What does the process of meeting and then later on working with an artist look like for you? And has that changed, like, throughout becoming a more established producer and engineer? Yeah, so it's different for everybody. Uh, and my, my path is kind of an interesting one, uh, maybe more so than than what is traditional, if that even exists. So I tend to work with uh, one or two artists for long periods of time. So we're talking about, you know, six, seven years at a time, as opposed to having to go out and, uh, you know, hustle and work with a bunch of different artists and move on to projects, which I think is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. It just typically hasn't been what I've done because I've fallen in with people and we've had such great relationships and they've been so good in the industry that we've just stuck together and, and worked full time together on a bunch of uh, different projects. So um, now that's, it's changed a bit over the years where now I do a lot of work with labels. So instead of going, working with a specific artist and trying to you know hustle and meet that person or network or, or what have you, labels send me projects to work on. So okay. I don't necessarily, I can pick and choose if I want to or not. But, um, but that's 99% of what I do now is something that Warner or Disney Music Group or someone like that uh, approaches me about and says, hey, do you want to you know, do this, whatever. And sometimes it's not even with artists. It's for Marvel or it's for Star Wars or it's for something like that. I do a fair bit of that stuff as well. So it really it's all over the place. And of course, you're working with the artists behind the scenes who did that music or you're working on the music. With. You mentioned that um, with labels, like you get to kind of pick and choose. So you have a little bit of freedom of which projects you can choose. How do you decide that you want to work on a project? Yeah, well, it depends on what your level of involvement is going to be. And there's some contracts I have uh, through my, uh, the company I work with, Lander, that uh, you know, we have contracts with major labels where we pretty much master whatever comes in. 
Um, or I'll distribute it to, this is actually a good example. So I have a team of mastering engineers that I work with as well. Just look at mastering as one example of this, as opposed to just, you know, uh, production and mixing and all that stuff. And so if something comes in that's, that I feel like is right for me, I'll do it if I have the bandwidth, or I'll disseminate, I'll distribute it to somebody else if I think they might be better for a certain project or what have you. So it gives you, working with a team of people definitely gives you flexibility to mm -hmm. uh, not only make sure the project turns out as good as it can be, but also so that you can kind of pick things up uh, as you want. Because if you turn down a lot of work when that's sent to you, you're going to stop getting work. You know what I mean? You yeah. can't really, you can pick and choose, but only to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much how it works, at least for me now. I'm kind of curious about what a typical day looked like for you. Or do you even have anything called a typical day? Yeah, I mean, most people will be like, there's no typical day, right? Uh, I don't really have a typical day. Now, and it's, now, my situation is a little bit different these days than what it used to be. So I used to be engineering and producing specifically, meaning in the studio seven days a week, like a lot of people who are, you know, that, that was the thing. Now, I've kind of, my career, I, I've very intentionally diversified so that I still do that. So some days I'll be in engineering or producing or what have you. Um, I'm a, a college professor, so I ended up getting a bachelor's and master's degree in music technology so that I could teach audio production, and I consult with a lot of uh, other engineers and artists and stuff where I'm just kind of helping them learn to use the tools that they have to make music that, that we can then work together on. So that's some days it's that. Um, and then I, you know, I branched out to do a fair bit of tech development, so working with companies like Lander and other companies to spearhead you know, what the marketplace wants and what we can, you know, create and those two things dovetail and you have successful products that I then get to use myself and teach other people how to use. So it's all very symbiotic in that way. So for me, it, it, it is different every day, but it centers around tech development, education and, and the creative side of production and engineering. So it might be hard to answer because it's sort of an ambiguous question, but sure. I think that you can kind of decide how you want to answer this. Like how much of your voice or how do you implement like your voice and your identity into any song that you're engineering or producing? This it kind of is relates back to a, our previous question on, you know, how much involvement do you have creatively in different aspects of, of the production and engineering process? You know, just to kind of we'll start at the end and we'll step back. So if you're talking about, because most people these days do a bunch of different jobs inside of the production space, right? So, I might help somebody writing a song, I might mix it, I might record it, I might you know, master it or, or do production or whatever. So like, if you're starting at the end, so as a mastering engineer, um, which is the person who kind of polishes off a finished song so that it can go to uh, Spotify and iTunes and all of that, you're really, you know, you're making it. I, I kind of use the analogy of it's kind of like, you know, color correction or an Instagram filter or something like that. Like you can have a really good picture, which is a good mix, and then but if you really want to make it pop, right, you do your color correction, you go in and, you know, move things around and really polish it up. That's kind of what mastering is. So I, I say that because you have the least amount of creative freedom there, right? You have the least ability to put your voice into something because you're dealing with something that's almost done and, um, and you're just kind of polishing it off, if that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, as you move earlier in the production process, Depending on the artist, you can have quite a bit of opportunity to, to put your stamp on stuff. I mean, mixing is a very personal uh, creative process, and, and most mix engineers have their own style. And a lot of times you get hired because people know you have that specific style, right? You're good at certain things, and maybe 
you know, do less work in other genres or things like that. Um, and then, like I said, as you move earlier and you get into songwriting and stuff, then you really just, uh, you know, you're kind of the impetus for the creation. So, of course, it's going to be your stamp on it. You know, it's coming from you, you know, in collaboration with other people. So uh, not to be vague, but, yeah, it really is uh, about what part of the process you're in. And then, again, who are you working with and what do they need from you uh, and what kind of relationship do you have with them? And that's, you know, there's producers who produce records for artists who have very little input on what the record actually sounds like. And then there's producers uh, like there's an artist named Adrian, uh, Adrian Blue that I worked with for years and years and years. And we would do everything together. I mean, I could literally do whatever I wanted and, you know, and was basically writing the songs with them. So it really varies uh, depending on your situation and who you're working with. Anyway. Thank you. That's really interesting. Just like I never knew that you could kind of jump in and produce at different stages of a song, which is really interesting to me. So that's really cool. Um, are there any like genres that are, more difficult for you to produce or engineer than others or is there like a particular genre that you find yourself liking to produce like you enjoy producing it more than others yeah that's a great actually a great question i personally for me i uh i'm kind of a tech nerd like a sound design nerd so i like ear candy so mm -hmm. like so which means i tend to gravitate towards genres that support kind of interesting production so uh, you know, that typically is going to be like electronic music or maybe acoustic music that incorporates electronic stuff is kind of my favorite thing to be a part of because you can really, I, you know, I've got a lot of, I kind of stockpile unique tools, software and hardware, and that's really a good application of that kind of stuff outside of like a jazz album, a traditional jazz album or a traditional classical album. You know, I prefer stuff that's, that's a little more experimental or at least, uh, you know, productions that, that have a willingness to, to apply some experimental stuff to even, you know, more traditional pop structures. So that's probably my favorite thing uh, on the production side, at least. I was curious about if you have any um, sounds that were like particularly experimental in the sense that, you know, like maybe like pots and pans or like, oh, yeah. something, like what's, can you give us an example of a couple? Oh, sure. I've got a couple of good ones here. Yeah. Lo I love any of the found sound, like go around your house, you know, bang on. I just did something the other day for somebody where I was, you know, just banging on my table and I'd set a bunch of stuff up on the table. So when you hit the table, things bounce and make this rattling sound and that became the snare drum. Uh, this has been a few years ago now, but uh, this uh, Pixar film and we had, I did some of the sound design for it, but produced the music for it. And we had gone to uh, Skywalker Sound uh, out in San Francisco and to record an orchestra. So, right, we have the orchestra. They're, they're recording this music in combination with some tracks that uh, me and Adrian had put together. And there's a scene in the film where water, there's, a, there's this little bird right, that's on a beach, and water goes over the bird, and the bird goes underwater. So I decided that me and the director went out, and I took all the orchestral recordings, beautiful-sounding orchestra, and I put speakers in the pool in Pixar, at Pixar's headquarters, and we recorded, and so I broadcast the orchestra underwater, and we re-recorded it underwater. So when the bird goes underwater, the orchestra literally went underwater. So, uh, and I tried it, recording it in trash cans full of water and bathtubs and all sorts of stuff until we eventually had to go to a pool just because you could tell the size of what was going on. You couldn't really fit it really well. So stuff like that, I think it's just a blast where you have just whatever you can think up, you can pretty much do. That's one of the beauties of being in any creative field, as long as you have, 
you know, the trust of other people to allow you to, ex in the time, to explore that kind of stuff. Something that I wanted to ask is, you know, I kind of, I have a lot of, so I make music just for fun, like on the side. I'm more, I'm more of like a singer-songwriter, but I work with a lot of my friends that are producers that kind of just miraculously taught themselves. You know, there's so many tools out there, and there's this whole genre, like bedroom pop is a huge thing now, where people are literally yep. making music in their bedrooms. And I was curious Me about... Too. If you, I guess you too, uh, yeah. But I was uh, curious if you had any advice for those specific people that maybe, you know, don't have the means to go to school for it, but are self-teaching themselves and are just trying to really progress. It's like, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, and it's probably not anything surprising or groundbreaking, but my first bit of advice is don't go to school for it. So, and I say that as somebody who's been a professor for over a decade of the thing we're talking about. Um, school is right for some people. And it's not right for everybody. And I've seen a lot of students waste a lot of money and not get a lot out of going to college for, for any type of music, not just music production. So because um, if you haven't gone on, you know, YouTube or, you know, lynda.com or Mac Pro Video or all these resources where you can learn about whatever the hell it is you want to do, right? If you haven't not exhausted that, but, but dug in heavily, if you're not passionate enough to do that, then you're not going to be passionate enough to get anything out of school to make a career out of what you're doing, right? School is, if you need that to motivate you, right? Grades. I mean, I tell my students, I don't give a crap what their grades are. Like their grades ne don't matter. You sh everyone should get an A in my class, but if you don't, it's not going to affect your career one bit. It's really about you know, learning, you know, and that's going to school is great. If you want access to facilities, schools have nice studios. They have stuff like that, right. That you can get experience. It might be more difficult to get, but it's really, I mean, it's, that's why I say it's not surprising. It is getting on YouTube, doing videos, finding, you know, people, you know, locally or even online that have skill sets that you don't have, or that are better at certain things than you are. Maybe you're better at certain things than they are. I used to trade guitar lessons, uh, to a, with, for a vocalist that was amazing and he would teach me how to sing. So, right, we would kind of barter back and forth to build each other's skill sets and that was all free, right? That, I didn't take out $100,000 in loans to go to school for that. I then took out $100,000 to go to school, but, uh, you know, whatever. And, you know, for me, though, I can say that I, I wouldn't be where I'm at if I hadn't gone to college. Like, I, the way that my brain works, I needed that. But I just kind of acknowledge that not everybody does. So, there you go. That's good advice. Thank you. You're welcome. You sound like a very creative person, obviously. You've progressed this much in your for that reason. But if you ever kind of go through writer's block or if you need to kind of give your creativity, like, another boost, what are some tactics that you use? Or, like, that was a great question. I was, I was going to ask you for tips about that, actually. <laughs> All the time, man. Like, you know, even though, as we were chatting about, I, I'm kind of diversified and that I do different things, you know, often, which helps. So that's one thing immediately to me is that by having other outlets uh, that aren't just writing or aren't just mixing or aren't just, you know, et cetera. Those, those things tend to, by stepping away from something, you can kind of get reinvigorated about it or, or something else you're working on will help, you know, funnel your creative juices back to an area. Maybe you were blocked. So I find that that's probably uh, the biggest thing for me and just making sure, and I'm really bad about this, that I, because you work on music all day long, right? Like I work on music all the time. Sometimes I forget to listen to music. And to listen to music like a fan, right? It would be like being a director and not watching films for the love of watching films, but picking them apart, you know, and picking apart every scene in the dialogue. That's great. And that type of an analytical mind is really important in this work. But being able to listen like a fan and just remember why you enjoy music, because that's what feeds your creativity. It's why we're all in this industry anyways, right? So 
I've, I've definitely gone through periods where I get so analytical about like listening to the reverb on the snare drum in that particular song that I lose sight of the bigger picture and you can, yeah, it can become overly technical. And that's when I notice that my creative juices kind of diminish a bit. So uh, yeah, just trying to remember why I got into this to begin with. And teaching also helps me. So I get so much, so much inspiration from my students. Uh, it's, it's crazy. And like getting to hear what they're working on and like their application of some of the stuff I've helped share with them and where they've taken that always like inspires me to go back and, and you know, to, to do my own thing because it's really staying connected to people at the very beginning of their career. And that's always, always the best. And thank you so much for all your time and no worries. answering all of our questions. I learned so much. So thank you. We'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast episode. We've hoped that you enjoyed our episode as well as the podcast series as a whole. We'd like to give special thanks to Sun Kuma, Daniel Rowland, and Jonathan Eshak for taking their time to be interviewed by us. We'd like to give specific thanks to Sun Kuma for allowing us to use his song Indica as part of our podcast episode. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations. Thank you to all of our guests for spending their time with us and sharing their insights. We'd also like to thank Tony Rodriguez for composing this season's theme music. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern to hear from Vinny Frieda, the Chief Data Officer of Warner Media Group, and a proud Stanford alum, Kate Labrell, VP of A&R at Warner Records, and learn about the birth of Stanford's Frost Music Festival. We're the Stanford students that helped put this season together. To hear all our episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stay up to date with everything we're working on, including a playlist that features all our musical guests from season one, and our social media accounts where we post sneak peeks of what's to come, check out our website at dropthemiccast.com. This has been Drop the Mic. Thanks again for tuning in. We can't wait to share more with you next week.